Let's pray together and then linger over the Lord's word as we go into our day. Our Father, we do uh, thank you, Lord, for your great grace and mercy, not only in bringing us to yourself, but in giving us the great privilege of being co-laborers with the Lord Jesus Christ in this world. We know, O God, that that privilege comes with uh, enormous challenges in our lives, and how thankful we are that the grace of God is with us as we are being conformed uh, to the image of our elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, day in and day out uh, in our lives. We ask you this morning, as we linger over your word, that you would be pleased to lead and guide us into truth, that you would give us an aptitude and appreciation for the things that have been freely given unto us, that you would stir our hearts and bend our wills so that we find ourselves better, more fruitful, fervent servants the Lord we so love. Grant us this things, these things we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. Well, the passage of scripture that I would invite you to turn to uh, this morning is found in uh, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 8, and uh, we're looking together at verses 18 through 22. Uh, Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 22. And here's what you find written there. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now these words are obviously somewhat of an interlude uh, that was brought on by something that occurred to Matthew as Matthew watched the Lord Jesus day in and day out ministering in the region of Galilee. And what Matthew observed in the Lord's ministry was a surprising tendency. And when he saw it, it led him to include this surprising interaction with these two men who approached the Lord Jesus Christ on the way to the boat. Now, in the time we have, what I want to invite you to reflect with me on is this, the tendency and the way in which it reveals to us something that's vital that we know about the kingdom, and then the surprising interaction with the two men and what it teaches us about how we must live in that kingdom. So we want to look at the kingdom itself that's so evident in the tendency that Matthew observed in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then what that teaches us about living in the kingdom, which is so clear from the interaction that the Lord Jesus had with these two men on the way to the boat. So the first question that uh, confronts us this morning is, what is the tendency that Matthew finds uh, so surprising, so arresting, 
in the life of the Lord Jesus. And the tendency, I think, that uh, prompted Matthew to include this uh, in the scriptures is the typical response of the Lord Jesus Christ to the crowds. When the crowds grew to uh, great proportions around Jesus' ministry, what sort of surprised Matthew was that the typical response of Jesus when he was strong by the masses was to relocate himself to another place. It was counterintuitive to Matthew, and it caused him to wonder and to ponder as to what was motivating the Lord Jesus to do it. And uh, what that does is it reveals to us uh, at least two things we should observe about the kingdom of God. The first is this, is that Jesus did not come uh, to be a miracle worker, but instead to be the savior of the world. The context here is that Jesus was doing surprising miracles that had astounded the masses. Never before in the history of the world had anyone seen uh, what Jesus Christ did on a daily basis in his preaching ministry. No one had seen a man stand on two legs on terra firma and and heal the way Jesus did. No one ever saw the eyes of the blind open or the ears of the deaf uh, open so that they could hear or crippled and mangled limbs made whole or skin that was blanched by leprosy restored in such a way that it was as if the person never had the disease before. No one ever saw the dead raised. These were powerful displays of uh, kingdom power in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's no surprise to us at all that when Jesus ministered, the masses came out in droves, bringing their sick and afflicted and those who were wounded from as far as the word reached, they came. What Matthew observes is that as soon as the miracles got in the way of the message of the kingdom, Jesus tended to relocate himself and to begin afresh. And what that shows us about the Lord Jesus and the relationship of the works of power, the miracles that was done in the ministry of Jesus, was that they were not the main point of his kingdom. They were illustrations and authenticating signs of the message that Jesus came to proclaim. If you're thinking with me this morning, it shouldn't surprise you at all that that's the case. Because Jesus was a man whose mind was dominated by the reality of the kingdom, not just the illustrating properties or authenticating properties of the kingdom, but the reality of it. And the reality, as far as Jesus was concerned, was that the only thing that was going to ultimately glorify his heavenly father or help the people that was given him from the foundation of the world was that they would come to a knowledge of God saving truth. You recall Jesus and the holiest words ever spoken on earth standing before his father describing what it is to enjoy eternal life. Was it rooted in the miracles? Jesus says this is eternal life. That they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He knew that what men needed above everything else was to be delivered from their sins and brought into a saving relationship with God. And he never got it uh, mistaken or his priorities uh, out of order. 
was always on the ministry. You recall uh, the event that happened in Mark chapter 1 where uh, Jesus had done similar miracles uh, that are described here in Matthew's gospel. And the next morning when the sun came up, the masses came looking for more of his miraculous powers at work among them. And Jesus wasn't even to be found. He was away somewhere praying. And Peter came to him and said, Master, what are you doing? Everybody's looking for you. And they were looking for healings. And Jesus said, let us go. For I have come out to preach. And he relocates himself and serves uh, somewhere else. Another thing that it reveals to us is that uh, as far as the Lord Jesus Christ was concerned, uh, the three years that he had on earth, he was intent to reach as many people as he possibly could. Because he realized that the message of the kingdom was something that everyone needed without any exception at all. Matthew Henry, um, reflecting on this passage, says this, and it's wonderful uh, the way he puts it. He says, though they were desirous to have him there, and the masses certainly were, he knew there were others as desirous to have him with them. And they must have their share of him as being acceptable and useful in one place for Jesus there's no objection against but a reason for his going to another place. And what we can learn from this this morning is this, that there should be something of this in all of us. In terms of how we look at our Christian lives, there ought to be in us a emphasis, not exclusively, but preeminently on the message of the kingdom. That should be the emphasis in our lives and the bringing of that message to others. I believe we are living in one of the most non-evangelistic ages in the history of the Christian church. There's tons and tons of activity, but very little practical witness to the Lord Jesus Christ in the daily lives that we have as Christians. You know, there are many who are in dire uh, danger going to heaven without ever going kneecap to kneecap with an unbeliever and seeking to patiently and lovingly explain to them the way to the kingdom, how it is that you come to know Jesus, how it is you come to be delivered from your sin and to enjoy the privileges of those who have been washed in his blood. May it never be true of us. May there be in us a burning desire to make Christ known to others in our daily lives with the resources and faculties that the Lord has given us. I'll never forget um, having a conversation uh, with an individual about uh, 12, 13 years ago. Um, I was pastoring a church out in California, and we were looking to buy a church property, and we were talking to a church that was uh, populated mainly by seniors. And I asked the guy why it was that he was selling the church. And you know what his answer was? It shocked me. His answer was this. He said that uh, we've all grown old, and the neighborhood has changed. And what we would like simply is to sell our property and move to a nicer neighborhood and die off together. And I looked at the man and I said, do you realize you're not authorized to do that? That the Lord has given us a commission that we must take up and we must follow him and that if we are truly his disciples, now this wasn't calculated for me to get the property, was it? <laughs> and we didn't get it. But may it never be true of any of us that uh, we've lost sight of why it is that the Lord has called us to himself. 
see that he has called us uh, to follow him. Now that's the first question, uh, the tendency that he finds surprising uh, Christ, uh, not uh, so much uh, on earth as a miracle worker, but as a savior uh, for sinners who desperately need salvation, as the one who has come to bring uh, hurting humanity into a relationship with the Holy Father. That's Christ. That's your savior. And that we are to be like him and to follow him and to live even as he has lived. Now here's the second. What does Matthew observe? What does he see in this that leads him to include these interviews? Because it's clear in the passage, isn't it? Jesus says he saw the, Matthew says he saw the masses and said, let's go to the other side. And before he gives the account of the ride in the boat, Matthew tells us about these two individuals that approached the Lord Jesus Christ on the way. What led Matthew to include these two brief sort of almost incidental encounters with Jesus? Why did he include it? It's because he saw something in Jesus' command that lifted his eyes from the authority of Jesus as he ministered to the implications of following Jesus. And he included both of these uh, sort of brief interactions so that we would learn a lesson that we are very much prone uh, to miss in our daily lives. And sometimes if we are not really conscious of it, uh, we won't practice it. And we won't have the benefits of the maturity that uh, it will work in our souls. What it is that Matthew sees uh, precisely, we'll never know. Uh, we don't know whether... Matthew, having been a tax collector, looks at uh, what's bound up in Jesus' command, and Matthew, with an eye towards administration and logistics, says, well, it's not an easy thing just to jump in the boat and go to the other side at this time of the day. He may have been thinking that. He may have been thinking of all of the labor and all of the manpower and the rowing and the loading and the unloading to go to the other side and the sort of almost seemingly cavalier way in which Jesus said, let's just go. Matthew might have said to himself, this is difficult, that's hard. It's not as easy as you make it. Or he may have looked off into the horizon while Jesus was speaking and judging from what comes after this passage, he may have seen uh, the dark and foreboding look over the horizon of the clouds and knew that a storm was coming and perhaps he looked and said, this is going to be a dangerous journey. We're going to row uh, part of the way into the night and get caught out in the midst of the storm and we may not even make it to the other side. Is this the best day for us to travel? Why can't we just stay here and wait till the morning when the weather is fairer and the sun is up before we leave? Or maybe he thought, and I think rather this might be along the lines he thought, maybe he thought to himself, you know, if we go to the other side, it's a journey there, it's a journey back, and he's going to minister there. That's going to involve uh, a few days away from home, and uh, I'm going to be able to sleep in my bed tonight, and I won't see my kids in the morning. And he thought, this is the tendency of following Jesus in his earthly life and ministry. Sacrifice. Difficulty. Problems. Me taking my own agenda and sublimating it to his. Whatever it was, Matthew saw something in Jesus' attitude, his demeanor, the demands of following him that led him to include these two things. And so what he learned he included these two 
interviews with the Lord Jesus Christ so that we ourselves might learn what he learned. And what is it that he wants us to catch and not miss? This isn't Matthew saying this to us. Don't miss in your relationship with the Lord Jesus the importance of a realistic understanding of who it is that calls us and what it is that he calls us to. Don't miss that. And what he does is he draws our attention to the scribe who approaches the Lord Jesus Christ because for Matthew, he perfectly illustrates the danger that confronts every one of us if we don't get it, if we don't see it, if we don't adequately reflect on it so that it burns deep tracks in our lives, so that it strikes in us deep enough so that it changes the way we think and the way we interact with the Heavenly Father. What does he see in the scribe? Well, the first thing I want you to note is that he calls our attention to two things that takes place in the conversation. He, takes, he, he calls our attention first to the man's perception of Jesus. Do you notice the interaction is sort of subtle here? He's a scribe. He's a professional theologian. He's an interpreter of scripture. He has a reputation for being a teacher. He comes to Jesus and he says, teacher, I will follow you wherever. And do you notice Jesus' response? This is the first time in Matthew's gospel Jesus uses his favorite designation for himself. He calls himself here not a rabbi, not a teacher, but the son of man, which is clearly a messianic term. That term describes the one in Daniel 7 who walked the fiery parkway and stood in the presence of the Almighty when no one else could. That's the description of the one who has the kingdom bestowed to him so that all of the nations report to him and are accountable to him. He is the one that's given a dominion that will never pass to another. So here is this scribe, this professional theologian, this teacher coming to Jesus as if they might be peers. And surely he sees in Jesus, he's a better teacher than I am, he's more popular than I am, but he's a teacher like I am. And Jesus says, the son of man. As if the first thing the scribe must see is get this straight. We are hardly peers. You are a teacher, a messenger from my father. I am the son, the one who is appointed the heir of all things. And if we had to begin to walk with Christ, we must see that he is the supreme one. He is the preeminent one. He is the one whom the father has given everything to. Jesus is an economy of God, he may be our elder brother, and that is wonderful. But never lose sight of the fact that he is the son of man, the one to whom the dominion has been given, the one to whom all the nations will be gathered, the one to whom the Father will sum up all things through him to himself. That's who he is. And do you notice not just his perception of Jesus, but his, deception of, his perception of discipleship as well. And I think that's bound up in who he is. He's a scribe. And do you know what's most true about scribes in that culture? And we can see this about uh, those who have been privileged with ed education, especially theological training in the body of Christ even today. 
You know, a scribe was above all else a professional. He was a scholar. He was a teacher. His life was one of societal acceptance and conformity to expectations. He looked at Jesus and he saw the crowds and he says, probably to himself, I'm just sort of using my imagination a little bit, but if I was a scribe and I looked at Jesus and Jesus didn't have the training I had, he didn't come from the schools like I did, I may not have the crowd, but I've got the dossier. I've got the resume. Jesus doesn't. We should be together. We get together, you got the crowds, I got the resume, I got the dossier, I'll follow you. And in the background of his mind, he's thinking that following Jesus means comfort and perhaps even notoriety. And he's going to follow Jesus and he's going to become as popular as Jesus is. The same sort of adulation which the crowds look at Jesus, he's going to get a little bit of that. And Jesus says to him, in no uncertain terms, the foxes have holes, the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It's as if he, Jesus looks at him and says, do you realize that I, who am the one who is the author, the one who is the, the pioneer of the new heavens and the new earth, the creator of the new order, I have no place to lay my head in this present age? That the world isn't my friend, it's my opposition, it's opposed to me, it rejects me? Why are you coming out to follow me? What do you think it's going to lead to? What do you think it's going to produce? It will make you like I am an outcast. Are you ready for that? Are you willing to lay down everything so that you might gain what I have to give? Will you lay down your plans, your purposes, your aims so that you might enjoy what is truly mine and not just a cheap carbon copy what it means to enjoy reality and divinity. Will you do it? The implication here is that the scribe was questioning to you this morning is, are you ready? You recognize what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, when Christ calls a man, he takes his task to follow. Follow the Lord Jesus Christ as to relinquish our own plans and purposes. Jesus a little bit later says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for mine will find it. This is the first non-negotiable of discipleship. You must be willing to forsake everything for Jesus in order to truly is the thing of the rich young ruler is going to get. And it's the thing we must deny and reject. Now, then there's the second interview where Matthew points us to the importance of letting nothing pre prevent us from responding to the claims. On the one hand, there's the challenges, there's the difficulties in following the Lord Jesus. Matthew includes the second so that we don't stand at the door, but we walk into the room. We don't stand off and say, well, it's too difficult. Instead, we say, it's what I must do. And so he shows us this other man who walks up to Jesus and sets us up so that we can see that in order to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, there must be no competing allegiances in our lives. And 
likewise here it's evident in the designation, isn't it? Matthew says this. He says that there was another who was one of the disciples. We call him Lord. Do you realize that his approach to the Lord Jesus Christ and the way in which he addresses Jesus is like a standing invitation for us to reflect on the level of his commitment to Christ? He calls him the Lord. So surely if there was anyone who would follow Christ anywhere, like the um, scribe claimed that he was willing to do, it's going to be this man. Yet the very next words out of his mouth, he goes first boldly, then follow. Jesus says, follow me. He says, let me first do this, and then I will follow you. Now there's many ways in which that's, uh, that's understood, but regardless of which approach you take to understanding what he meant by let me go by, by, bury my father, let me say this about it for the sake of time. You can't escape the fact or sense that he was just making it clear. That in other words, he looked at what it meant to follow Jesus and he saw what Matthew saw, that it was difficult, that there was hardship involved in it. And he said, you know what? Not now. Let me accomplish these other things first. Then I will come and follow you. And you know that such things delayed means never. It means never. Brothers and sisters, this morning, I want to say to you, that's a good word. The rest of your life is going to be a tension, a warfare, a conflict between Christ It's going to be Christ in your career. It's going to be Christ in your spouse, Christ in your children. It's going to be Christ in everything. And it's usually a contrast between the supremacy and lordship of Jesus Christ in your life and these other things that are wonderful in their own right. They're just not allowed to have preeminence or supremacy in your life. They're not allowed to usurp the authority of Christ in your life. And here's a case where as clear as anything could possibly be. In this culture, there's very little that we could think of that rose to the level he, of, of obligation that he sensed. Let me go bury my father in a culture that was paternalistic and oriented around the family, that sort of idolized it much like we do today. And Jesus says, I take preeminence over that. That if you are to begin to walk with me, you must know that I come before my father and sister and brother. It's not that you disrespect them, but you cannot put them on the same level. That I'm told in your heart and in your affections and in your plans and in your purposes, I must burn your life. I must be Matthew wants us to see that when we call Jesus Lord, we must mean it. We must mean it. And by that that he comes before the most cherished and sacred earthly connections that we could have in this world. He's coming to die. Do you notice here the exclusivity of the appeal that Jesus makes? His response is terse, bordering on irony. Follow me. And let the dead bury the dead. And Luke adds to it, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of Well, let me sum it up in a simple sentence to say this. Here's the principle of Jesus' 
actually came to the kingdom for that which was his own. Now, do we understand that sets us free to live our lives and to glorify God in every dimension of our lives? But it causes us to have our priorities wrong. Let me illustrate it to you. It means this, that you can go into the public school system and do your teaching Christ teaching and value the education of the kids, but you always have to recognize in your mind that there are others that come and educate. And so you educate, but it's not optimal. You realize that you're the only one who will bring the message of the kingdom, which will cause those who desperately need a relationship with God to enter into it. So you don't allow the career, you don't allow the family, or you don't allow any of the other things to rise to the level of ultimacy so that it paralyzes you and render your discipleship of none effect in your life. Think about it. You know who he is and what the kingdom of God is about on planet Earth. And to accept the implications of that kingdom and to let no earthly illusions, if at all, cloud our judgment or slack our skin on our decision. His claim is one of absolute supremacy over ours. The question this raises for us is this. Do you have a realistic understanding of who it is that called you and what he called you to do in this world? And do you trust him? let nothing and no one get in the way of following his ways. Now I'm going to pray in a second and I invite you just to take a moment to search your heart and ask that question again. You're still running on your own terms and purposes or is it yours? You're still trying to save your life what do you have going on that drives you to that place? Let's reflect for a brief second, and I'll close us in prayer. profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul. Help us, O God, to recognize that the kingdom of heaven has issued to us an invitation, has given us the high privilege of being co-laborers with the God of heaven and earth. Grant that it would dominate our minds commandeer our world, subsume all our affections so that we follow you with all our might and mind and all the days of our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed this morning and God bless you.